Did you notice how like their parents they are? Nobody sits on the front step. <laughs> Boys and girls, this is the first time I've had the opportunity to talk to you. It won't be the last, I hope, because I'll be doing this, I think, almost every Sunday. But I want to start this morning by asking a question. Can somebody tell me what the word sample means? You know what a sample is? Tell me. Sample. So you can try. Is it big or little? Little. Something little, so you can try something that really is bigger, but you don't have to take the whole thing all at once. What kinds of things can we get samples of? Do you know one? Ice cream, my favorite. What's another? Fudge. You know where to get samples of fudge? Talk to me after church. What else? Cake. Oh, there a hand went down. You got one more? Chicken. Oh, I'm going to go there too. Talk to me. Samples are things that people give you a little bit of in a spoon or on a toothpick or in a little tiny cup so you can see what the rest of it tastes like and whether you want to buy the whole thing or not. Well, I brought something along this morning that at least I never saw before. The world's largest gummy bear. Five pounds. <laughs> now, you have to pretend with me this morning that you never saw or heard of a gummy bear. But I told you they were good. Now, what would we do for you to find out if you wanted to have the whole thing? Sample it. How would you sample it? I would pass it around, you could each take a bite, right? <laughs> that, that wouldn't be a very good idea, not to take a bite out of it. How could we do this? Do you know? You could cut it into little pieces, but then we wouldn't have my world's largest gummy bear anymore. I did find a way to give you samples, though, and I will in just a minute. But what I wanted to tell you about with ice cream and chicken and fudge, what else did we hear about samples of? Cake and gummy bears. Think about this. God wants you and me and all of us to be samples of Jesus. Not to taste, but to hear or to see. And people who don't know who Jesus is watch us and they listen to us and they hear from us and they think, that's what Jesus is like. Those people are Christians. And we can help them know who Jesus is by the way we act. We are samples, like you're going to get samples right now, of gummy bears, four or five of them in a little bag, so you can see, because you never had one before, whether you really want to have these things. Uh, this is going to stay up here, and it's going to be a prize sometime, so don't come back after church and chew a leg off, okay? <laughs> but when you take these samples of gummy bears, and whenever you eat them, 
remember that God wants you and me and all of us to be samples of Jesus to people who don't know him so they can see and love him the way we do. Be sure that's what you do. You may go back to your seats. We begin this morning a series of messages that I've titled, The Church God Wants Us to Be. That's a series that could probably last for years, but this one will be about six or seven sermons long. What does God expect of us? How should we act? How should we be church? How should we be samples of Jesus? We begin by reading Acts chapter 11, page 893 in your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. The word of the Lord. We'll uh, call him Aaron. That's not his real name. He's a college student. And it's getting towards the end of the academic year, and he's applying in different places for a job for the summer, hoping that God will place him in some area of significant Christian ministry but he's not getting any responses. Finally, he decides he, he has no more time to wait to see if something opens up, and he takes the one job that is available, and he becomes a bus driver, a city bus driver in Southside Chicago. 
It's not the job he wanted, but it's the only job he could get. And he ends up a rookie bus driver in a dangerous part of town. It isn't long before on his route, every morning, a gang of teenage guys decide to board, and they do it the same way. They barge in, they walk past him, they refuse to pay, they sit down, and they make fun of him and say nasty things to him from wherever they're seated in the bus. And nothing he does or says changes a thing. He lets it go until one morning he can't stand it any longer, and he sees a policeman on the sidewalk, pulls the bus over, jumps out, tells the policeman who gets in the bus and makes the kids pay, and then goes wherever he was going. Didn't help much. As they came back on the bus, they beat up Aaron and did the same thing all over again. Aaron decided while questioning God, why are you letting this happen? All I wanted to be involved in was a Christian ministry, and look what's happening. Aaron decided to press charges. The kids were all rounded up and brought to court and sat across the room from Aaron and glared at him with evil in their eyes. And suddenly, Aaron was possessed by a whole new set of thoughts than he'd had before. He didn't hate these kids anymore. He pitied them. And when they stood at the appropriate time and pled guilty to the charges, Aaron said, excuse me, Your Honor, may I speak? And when granted permission, he got up and said, your Honor, I am asking that you total up all the time these guys would serve, whether that's days or weeks or what it is, add it all together and let me serve the sentence. The judge didn't know what to say. The attorneys didn't know what to say. And the guys who had just pled guilty sat there with their eyes bugging out and their mouths hanging open. Finally, the judge came to himself and said, young man, you're out of order. Nothing like this has ever been done. And Aaron said, oh yes, it has, your honor. A little over 2,000 years ago, a man from Galilee took the guilt of all of us on himself and ask God to let him pay for it so we could be free. And he proceeded to tell them the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ and recognized as he was telling them that he was engaged at that moment in a very significant Christian ministry after all. I think, figuratively speaking, he must have passed through a place called Antioch on his way to court that morning. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled. That's how the passage began. It had taken three big steps to get to everywhere. 
First of all, in chapter 8 in Acts, Philip had preached to Samaritans. Now, Samaritans weren't entirely Gentile, but neither were they entirely Jew. They were half of each. But things were beginning to change. Then in chapter 10, Peter talks to Cornelius, who was entirely a Gentile, but who had really asked to hear about the gospel. Now in Antioch, believers are simply going in the chapter we read from this morning and talking to Greeks and and witnessing to non-Jews for the first time. The mission to everywhere had been launched. Walls were coming down. Barriers were being moved. Inhibitions were being jettisoned. Prejudices were disappearing. And the church was beginning to realize that the whole world was its community. Just think for a minute of the daring that took. Never before in history. Completely revolutionary. Reaching out to folks they had been raised to believe were evil, untouchable, dirty, and to be hated. And the people who first dared and cared enough to begin to reach out as far as the arms of God were stretching aren't even named. Will you also consider this morning what made them go to Antioch? It was persecution. Luke tells us that. The most epic-making move in the history of the Christian church was sponsored by trouble. People running for their lives. People running, as it turned out, all the way to Antioch. For anyone not familiar with the geography of the area, and in Gather and Grow in a little while, I'll show it to you on a map, but we're in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea and 15 miles inland is where the city of Antioch is. Third greatest city in the world at the time. Third only to Rome and Alexandria. An old city already having been established in 300 B.C., a population of 500,000 people, no small town, 70,000 Jews lived there, and people from all over the world because it was on trade routes. A city with magnificent architecture, a city whose name and reputation was synonymous with immorality. The goddess Daphne was worshipped there, basically the worship of sexual immorality, and temple prostitutes abounded and were always busy. There's one more thing about Antioch. It had a known reputation for a wry sense of humor. It seems they had the habit of making nicknames up for various groups in the city. So those who were particularly fond of the current Roman emperor 
a man by the name of Augustus were called the Augustianoi, the Augustians. And those who were fond of Herod were called the Herodians. Keep that in mind because they also came up with a nickname not at all intended to be complimentary for us, for the church. That's where it all started on the road to everywhere by who knows who because of persecution. Or so it seemed. Actually, it was the hand of God. Then as now, and there as here, moving in his mysterious ways to get his people involved in significant Christian ministry, not always as they thought, but surely as they ought. Now, look a little more closely with me at one of those nicknames they invented in Antioch. We'll go behind the scenes first. Christianity reached Antioch because people were running for their lives from the persecution after Stephen's death. And they ended up in Antioch, some of them, and Christianity took off there. And Luke tells us, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas, whose name, as we know it anyway, is also a nickname. It means son of encouragement. Seems that Barnabas was such an encouraging person, people said it's like encouragement is your dad. You're just full of encouragement. Not an unlikely choice to send to a brand new church on the frontier of Christianity. Not an apostle either, just a lay person. Whom would you send to help establish and encourage and build up a brand new church of brand new Christians? A rigid traditionalist or an open-minded encouraging teacher. Well, the church sent Barnabas. Someone who would be able to lead in worship a group of people who had by and large come in out of the world and no doubt had dragged a lot of the world along with them on the way. It wasn't long before things grew to such an extent in Antioch that Barnabas needed help and he knew just the man for the job a fellow named Saul who lived in Tarsus. He's still called Saul. You know him as Paul, and you and I know him quite well, but the fact of the matter is he hasn't been heard from for nine years in the Acts of the Apostles. Where was he? And what was he doing? Well, he was in Tarsus. Barnabas knew that, and he was no doubt there learning more about Christianity, and I'm guessing he was also teaching about it. And the two of them, Barnabas and Saul, went to Antioch, met with the church, and taught great numbers of people, Luke says. And wouldn't you know it, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Somebody in Antioch, true to the city's reputation, developed a nickname for these people too. Prior to this in the Acts of the Apostles, 
Uh, followers of Jesus were called by a variety of names. Chapter 1, they're known as the brothers. Chapter 2, those being saved. Chapter 6, the disciples. Chapter 9, the followers of the way. Also in chapter 9, the saints. Chapter 10, believers. But one day, somebody in Antioch said, you follow Christ, huh? Well, we'll just call you the Christianoi. The name didn't take very well at first. It's only mentioned two more times in the New Testament. In the 26th chapter of Acts and the 4th chapter of 1 Peter. But the people in Antioch, the hundreds of thousands of people in Antioch from all over the world knew that these people knew Jesus. That's the point. And they jokingly called them the Christ folks, the Christianoi, the Jesus people. Because they talked about this Jesus all the time, and much more significantly and importantly, they acted like this Jesus all the time. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That verb, called, the disciples were called Christians, it means literally to transact business. Literally, the believers in Antioch conducted the business of their lives like Jesus. They operated like Jesus. They managed the details of their everyday existence like Jesus. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if more folks today ourselves included, would live and act and react and respond and speak in such a way that other people would say, you must know Jesus. Would that that would happen in our homes when nobody but the family is looking or listening. Would that that would happen in our neighborhoods when only the few folks around us that we know would be aware of it. Would that it would happen in our classrooms, whether we are teaching there or learning there. Would that it would happen in our offices and our places of business, that just the way we conducted ourselves, the way we made decisions, the way we spoke to people who were customers or fellow workers, would make people say, you have to be one of Jesus' people. Would that that would happen in the way that we conduct our finances. Would that that would happen when we're shopping in a store, whether we find something we like or we are returning something that didn't work. Would that that would happen when we're in a restaurant and we get food that tastes good or we're served in what we think is a poor way. Would that that would happen in our legal dealings and our sports activities and in an area of life that I find to be increasingly important for Christians to act and talk and think and behave like Christians, like Christ in the social media. I'm old. 
I'm a dinosaur when it comes to electronics. My kids have been trying to talk me into buying a new phone, and I don't even want the one I have. <laughs> oh, but Dad, it will do so many things. I said, all it has to do is ring, and I don't like it when it does. <laughs> so I don't do Facebook. I don't tweet. And I don't even know what all the rest of that stuff is called. <laughs> but people who do have told me some absolutely ghastly, unbelievable, unforgivable, incredible stories of what folks who claim to be Jesus people say and do and think and act and react and respond when all you got to do is push a button and it goes. And I don't think we begin to realize how dangerous that is. How dangerous it is to us to think we got away with it. How dangerous it is for people we don't even know who might be reading it or seeing it or knowing about it and who say not only you must be one of the Jesus people, but who say if that's what Jesus people act like, who wants to have anything to do with him? Christians are people who manage the business, the details of their everyday lives in a Christ-like, Christly, Christish way. Almost as an add-on, Luke says, one day another group came to Antioch. Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world, and this happened during the reign of Claudius. It, it did. From AD 41 to 54, Claudius was the Roman emperor. There was a series of bad harvests, and as a consequence, a series of severe famines. And that's what a prophet does, we're tempted to believe. What Agabus did, he predicted what was going to happen in the future. But interestingly enough, I would suggest that the believers in Antioch, the Christianoi, the Christ folks, the Jesus people, were prophets too. Not just, not even foretelling the future, but forth-telling the past. And confirming it by the way they lived, and the way they acted, and the way they spoke. The disciples... Each according to his ability, Luke tells us, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas, revealing, among other things, that charity is a two-way street because it was the church in Jerusalem that had not only sent Paul and Barnabas but had paid their way, no doubt, to help establish the church in Antioch. Now when the church in Jerusalem was having financial difficulty, the believers in Antioch were collecting money to send there so that they could help those who had helped them before. And that was not just a benevolent offering. That was putting their faith into practice. That was managing the details of their lives like Jesus. There was a little foretelling going on in Antioch but a lot more forth-telling.
She called herself ministry woman. She was a Christian author, a Christian radio personality, a Christian speaker who was in demand all over the country and who was always going places to give presentations. And she was busy and she was tired. And one night she happened to be at home for a change, speaking on the phone with a friend when call waiting interrupted. And she took the call and it was her neighbor down the street a ways saying, I really didn't know who else to call, but I need something. Could you please come over? And ministry woman thought for a minute and really wanted to say, I am just way too busy and too tired tonight. I can come tomorrow. But when she opened her mouth, the words that came out were, I'll be there in a minute. She had given this neighbor all kinds of Christian books to read, but the neighbor had never read any of them. She had invited the neighbor to church many times, but the neighbor had never come. She had suggested Christian radio programs for the neighbor to listen to, but she had never turned on the radio. And when she rang the doorbell, the neighbor answered, but was on crutches. Having just had her second hip replacement at the age of 35, because of severe arthritis. And her neighbor said to her, thanks so much for coming. I'm, I'm so tired, I want to go to bed. But, and she looked down at her feet, I can't bend over and take off my shoes and socks. And suddenly, ministry woman realized she'd been summoned to walk two blocks down the street late at night to take off somebody's shoes and socks. And at the same time she recognized she had been summoned at that hour to walk down the street and show Jesus her love and show Jesus to her neighbor. So she bent down and untied the shoes and slipped them off and pulled off the socks helped her neighbor get into bed, tucked her in, kissed her forehead, said, I love you, Jana. Good night. I know, said her neighbor, that's why I called you. I knew you'd come. It was a year and a half before Jana accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior, and by that time, ministry woman had moved out of the neighborhood and far away, but the seed had been planted. Who knows, she wondered, what would have happened if I had said I was too busy that night and stayed home? Who knows what would have happened if I had missed the opportunity to show Jesus my love for him and my neighbor his love for her? Could I just leave you this morning with a few other questions? What would be different in your conduct and your conversation today or this week if everywhere you went you wore a sign that said, 
I'm a Christian. What could you do or say that would prompt others to accuse you of being like Jesus? If you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? And what simple thing might you do or say even today, and maybe even before you leave this building, to show the same Christ to some neighbor of yours. Let's pray. Oh God, it's not hard, but we've made it so difficult. We don't have to go far. We might not even have to move an inch to show somebody your love, to be samples of Jesus. But we refrain so often. And not only that, Lord, but we do and say things that so contradict that point. Forgive us and help us to live and conduct the affairs of our lives in such a way that folks who don't even know us say they act just like Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen. And now would you please rise for the final praise as we sing our praise to the triune God and receive his parting blessing. Praise
announcements. Uh, tomorrow morning, the Growing Young Assessment Survey is done. So if you haven't uh, completed that, uh, please do that today, either this afternoon or this evening. Uh, you can do that online. There's an email that went out, or there are paper copies in the back as well. Um, and one, one more announcement, um, the, there are a couple of volunteers that dropped out of a serving opportunity for tonight. So if you are interested in serving uh, tonight at Degage, um, please see Keisha Houtsma in the back or give her a call. Go now in peace. May the God of peace himself give you peace at all times and in all places. The Lord be with you all. Amen. <laughs>